Today, the faithfulness of the Lord, we look at in the context of spiritual confrontation. What happens when there's direct confrontation? There is a um, consuming war going on around us that is sometimes in our faces and overt, obvious. It's always there. We have an enemy who is about the job of destroying every image reminder of the living God. And each of you are reminders to him. And he's about setting you up for destruction. Now, when you go into other cultures, you can see this a little more transparently. And when you're in our culture, it's sometimes a little more, sometimes a little more subtle. You don't see it quite as obviously, but it is still here. And we have an enemy, whether it shows up in the form of disease or depression or broken relationships, every chance this enemy can, he will destroy us. We are in the bullseye. I'm looking forward to this morning's message. We've, I've asked Mike Scott if he would um, bring us this message because he has lived in many parts of the world, both Southeast Asia, Indonesia, and the Philippines, and Africa with his family, Becky, and four kids. I think it's four, right? Um, and he has a bit of a story himself on this whole journey of having seen different faces of this enemy. But we have a faithful, victorious God. Mike, come on up. Our Father, we thank you for Mike. We thank you for the work that he does in Bible translation. We thank you for the work that Becky does with him. We thank you for their love for you. We thank you for their love for the world. And we ask right now that you would fill him to overwhelming with your spirit that he would guide us into a victorious life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. When I was asked to uh, speak on this topic, I was, uh, I have to admit, I quaked. When you're dealing with the spiritual powers of the world, uh, it's not something to play around with. And I, I come to you this morning not from any sense of knowing a lot. I've had a little, a few experiences because of the cross-cultural perspectives I've lived in, but I come to you at least to share a little bit of what I've experienced and seen and what God actually reveals through his word from Acts 19. So if you would uh, take your scriptures, let me get my little gadget over here. I happen to forget it. Take your scriptures, if you would, and turn to Acts 19. And let's take a look at what God will show us there. Very simply put, the chapter could be broken into three sections, depending on your translation. You may already be there in, in paragraph breaks. But the beginning of Acts 19, Paul shows up in Ephesus in the middle of his third missionary journey. Pretty well the whole chapter happens in the city of Ephesus. So we have his arrival in the first seven verses. Then the next uh, batch of verses comes along and uh, tells us about his ministry, what actually he does while he's there for a period of two years or more. 
And actually, the largest part of the chapter has to do with how he left Ephesus, how he got kicked out. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to dig into that too much this morning, but I hope to look at how he came and what he did and how God worked there. But first of all, some background. Come back here. If, you, if we were to start by reading the first verse of chapter 19, it says, while, Paulus was in, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Several believers. Believers in what? Some of your uh, translations might say disciples. He found several believers. But let's back up. Why, why does uh, Luke here record this bit about Apollos being in Corinth? What's the context of that? And to that, we have to turn back a few verses back into 18 to see what happened at the end of Paul's journey in his second uh, missionary journey. He had been traveling throughout Asia, and he'd spent a lot of time in Corinth, and he finally uh, decides to go back to Antioch. And if you look with me at verse 18, let me read. I'm reading from the New Living. Verse 18 of chapter 18. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Chantria. There he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria taking Priscilla and Aquila with them. He had met Priscilla and Aquila there in Corinth, believers that they were tent-making together, making tents to, to keep themselves with food and lodging. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus, a major port along the sea routes there. Let's see my thing here. Ephesus is right up there. But they were up here around Corinth. They came around and visited uh, this port of Ephesus. They stopped there. And while he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. Wow, he had an opportunity to share. But no, he said, I have something to do. I need to go. He declined, and as he left, he said, I will come back later, God willing. It wasn't a very strong commitment. It's like, well, maybe, if it all might work out, if everything falls into place, I might be back, I might not. And then he set sail from Ephesus, and he stopped into the port of Caesarea. From there, he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem and then went back to Antioch. That's the end of his second journey. He's back at home base again and back to report to perhaps rest a little bit, uh, get recuperated. And we don't know exactly how long he's there, but probably a year or less he spends in Antioch. Because the next verse, verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. So he begins on his third journey now. He leaves back from Jerusalem, where he was down here, and he comes back and he says he wants to visit the believers. So he was up in Antioch, and he starts this journey. He starts this journey, but in the meantime, he looks at the next verse, it, a meanwhile... In the meantime, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria would have been 800 kilometers away at least, um, at least by direct flight if you were to take an airplane today. But who knows how long it took for him to get there. So he came from a long way away. He was a Jew, but he was a foreigner in a, in a foreign city in Ephesus. He had been taught the way of the Lord and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. Somehow he knew about Jesus. And he was able to teach 
Luke says, with accuracy. He knew the facts. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. You know, there's lots of facts to be learned about Jesus. You can know lots of stuff. And here in this context, all of your heads are being filled with lots and lots and lots of facts. But it's not enough. Facts are not enough to have the full story. And that is where the Holy Spirit comes in, as we will see shortly. So Aquila and Priscilla take him aside, explain the rest of the story. And Apollos had been thinking, let me continue, Apollos had been thinking of going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. So Apollos heads off to Corinth. So he takes off from here, and he heads back up to Corinth, about around there, and he shows up in Corinth. So Apollos is gone. Aquila and Priscilla are probably still there in Ephesus. And... We see the end of the chapter. We see that uh, Paulus is very effective in his ministry there. So that's why Apollos is gone. Now we're back to verse 19 or chapter 19, verse 1. Paul has started his journey and he shows up in Ephesus. And the very first thing he does is he meets these believers. Now, Scripture doesn't say whether these were actually disciples of Apollos, but I think the context is clear. Why would Luke, after all that detail about Apollos, why would he include it if it wasn't the context for meeting these believers? So he meets these believers, and he asks them a very strange question. Have you ever walked up to somebody and asked them this question? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Anyone say that when you met somebody for the first time? I haven't. Paul, for some reason, comes with that question in mind. And he asks them, what were you doing? Oh, I, oh, I missed my nice little animation. Carmen actually set the stage for great animations. And I thought, well, I had to do something. So here we go. Yeah, there was Paul going around, around, around to Ephesus. Yeah, there... Not nearly as good as yours, Karma, but I tried. I tried. Yeah. So there's, there's Paul in Ephesus, and he meets these, these believers. And so he, he asks them, what was, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You realize how much work the Holy Spirit did to make all this happen? How this guy, Apollos, had to come from Alexandria. How he had to meet Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla were even left in Ephesus. So we read that back in chapter 18. Aquila and Priscilla were there waiting to meet him. They met him of all people. They convinced him. They added more to his knowledge, helped him understand what, who Jesus really was. And then Apollos left. And in the meantime, some of, these apostles, some of these disciples, rather, that he had ministered to and taught were there. And somehow, they had not met Aquila and Priscilla yet. They were still there believing what they had understood from Apollos. All these things had come together. And that brings me to my first point. The Holy Spirit pursues his people. The Holy Spirit pursued these 12 men who knew part of the truth but didn't know all. In this case, the Holy Spirit's acting as a director. He sees the whole stage. He had all this figured out. He knew who was where and when to move him and how to get them to move. Shakespeare even said it. All the world is a stage, and we are members of it. 
But truly, we have a Holy Spirit who sees a much bigger stage on the galactic level, on the universe level. He orchestrated all of this, and he brings them together there in Ephesus. So he asks the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And what was their answer? You look and see, he says, no, they replied, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Wow, talk about an open door for ministry, eh? Well, you don't even know about the Holy Spirit? So that's the exciting part of it. On the other hand, talk about a sad response. Can you imagine life without the Holy Spirit? You know all the stuff about Jesus, about God, but you don't know who the comforter who's come to live in your heart. You don't have the peace that he brings you. You don't have the sense of direction that he brings they didn't know there even was a Holy Spirit. I trust nobody in this room can actually say, I don't know that there is a Holy Spirit. And by no, I don't mean a knowledge that, yeah, you know it in your head. I mean a knowledge that reaches your heart. Have you actually experienced the Holy Spirit in your life? We had a visitor who came to Cameroon, uh, an intern for six months, teaching our co-workers elementary age children. Great gal, college student, been in college at least a couple of years from the States. And she came, and it was a difficult situation between language, between culture, between uh, just even weather. Everything was hard for her. And one time when we were sitting kind of commiserating together, encouraging her, I asked, I said, have you ever seen God do amazing things? We need to ask God to do an amazing thing to change all these things that are getting you so down. And she made the statement, I've never seen really God at work. What a sad, sad statement for a believer to say. Now, perhaps if you're in this room today and you, and you can say that, I haven't really seen God at work. I haven't seen the Holy Spirit actually active. There's many reasons for that. It could be there's sin in your life that's blocking. Your eyes are focused elsewhere. Maybe the evil one has a stronghold in your life that's not able to get past but your spiritual eyes are blinded. And so I would ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see him because he is there. Ask to see him. So the Holy Spirit is orchestrating all this sort of stuff. He puts them together. And he, re he responds, then what baptism did you experience? And they said, John's baptism, obviously referring to John the Baptist. What baptism was that? Now, later on, we'll see where Paul gives more direction as to or explanation of what is John's baptism. But we know from the scriptures earlier in the Gospels that John pre preached a, a baptism of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is coming, he said. He warned about Jesus coming. But John didn't know the whole story yet. He just knew that he was warning people to turn. And so these people had repented. They turned away from their sin, but they didn't know what they were hoping for. They didn't have the hope of the Holy Spirit in them. And so the Holy Spirit has orchestrated everything so that Paul is there to correct them. And Paul gives them, te teaches them. He says, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. 
And boy, were they ready for that word. It says, as soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What is baptism? Baptism is a, a setting yourself apart. It's saying, yes, this is what I stand for. It's laying, putting the line in the stand and say, I belong on this side of the line. And so they had already made that decision to stand on that side of the line for repentance. But now Paul asks them to stand on that side of the line for the name of the Lord Jesus. But it didn't stop there. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. I love that. The Holy Spirit came on them, laid his hands on them. The context, the implication there is prayer, and the Holy Spirit came on them. Some of you who've come from perhaps a more Pentecostal background, those of you who've lived in certain parts of Africa are very familiar with the Pentecostal churches who go to extraordinary lengths to ask the Holy Spirit to come and be active. Long, drawn-out ceremonies, very loud, loud speakers going on, almost like we're trying to compel the Holy Spirit to come and act in a situation. But that's not the model that we see here and the model we see in many places in Scripture. It's simply laying hands on them and asking God to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came on them simply, quickly, no fuss, no muss. And what was the sign that he'd actually come? That speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, tongues and prophecy doesn't always come with baptism. There's many places in the New Testament where that isn't a natural thing that comes after baptism. And it doesn't always come with the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? There's many people in the New Testament that we know received the gift of the Holy Spirit because they became his children and yet did not speak in tongues. But nonetheless, that is how the Holy Spirit set his seal of approval on them for this particular situation so that everyone was aware that these people had crossed the line and had said, we identify with Jesus. Just a bit of a sidebar, I've seen the little notes on the doors talking about a baptism for the students. A grand idea, by the way. I was one of those students who came here, had never been baptized. And I'm just, you know, between church and this and that and the other thing, had never actually decided to make that stand. So if you're here as a student or even a staff member and have not chosen to make that public stand, I really encourage you to do that. Make that proclamation. Say, yes, I am going to stand on this side of the line and choose to be identified with Christ. So the Holy Spirit pursued them, pursued these men and wanted to change them and get them back on the right path. He directed the whole situation and he brought them to a state of correction. That was my first P, and here's another P for you. The Holy Spirit's persistence. So jump ahead with me to verse 8. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, right? He just arrived in Ephesus. He'd met these people. All this had happened. But what did he actually do when he started his ministry? He went to the synagogue and preached for three whole months. 
Why did he go to the synagogue? Hadn't he left the Jewish traditions and all this other sort of stuff? I think he chose it because it was good strategy. He already had an identity as a Jew. It was an open door for him to go to any synagogue, wherever he could find a synagogue. He was accepted, at least initially there, because of his Jewish heritage. It was easy hanging fruit. He used the connections that he had to get a foothold in that particular culture. So much so that if you look in the last section, when during the riot, the Jews actually identify with him, not necessarily the believers. The believers don't have an ability to get up and, and protest, but they actually throw a Jew up to try to bring peace to the, in the middle of the riot. So he was, severe, he was definitely identified as a Jew. But as he began to preach, something happened. Some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. I submit to you as three stages of disbelief. First, we get stubborn. Anybody in here stubborn? Anybody here doesn't like to get told, ah, you're doing things wrong. You need to know something else, or, you're, or you're, you have a wrong idea about something. I'm one of those. And any of us who have had kids have seen it again and again and again, right? Stubbornness. No, I don't want to accept that particular fact. So it starts with stubbornness, and then it project, continues on to a rejection of the entire message. He takes, they say, no, we don't want to listen to anything that you say. And the next step then is overt antagonism, and they begin publicly speaking against the way. So what does Paul do? He gets up and leaves. And this brings me to another principle I want you to remember. There's a great cost for being stubborn. If you continue in your stubbornness and reject what God, the Holy Spirit, is trying to teach you, and get to the point when you're in overt rebellion against it, there will come a time, I believe, when he will leave you. He will choose to walk away from you, just like Paul did. The messenger of the truth walked away, and not only did the messenger of truth left, but he took the believers with them. So all of the witnesses that that the people in that synagogue had for the truth disappeared, and they were left to their rebellion than to live out the consequences of that. There's a cost, a great cost, for being stubborn. Don't be stubborn. If the Holy Spirit is talking to you, is trying to get a hold of your attention, is maybe rocking your world, there's a reason for it. Listen to it. So the Holy Spirit continues to work through Paul. He leaves the synagogue and he winds up in this hall of Tyrannus. Tradition says that it probably ran from 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. Remember, Paul was still a tent maker. He didn't have any salary coming in from a church or anything else like that. He had to provide for his own needs at least part of the time. So outside of those hours, probably he was working. But between those five hours, 11 to 4 perhaps, he was in this hall of Tyrannus speaking, talking, encouraging for two whole years doing the same thing over and over and over again. But you know the cool thing? He did that, but then what happened afterwards? In verse 10, as he goes on and on, daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tervanus, this went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now, the province of Asia I've got up there on the screen, that's kind of the western half of the whole country of Turkey in today's world. It was a huge, huge area. And Ephesus is just that tiny little 
dot in the corner here. Where are we, where are we at? Yeah. So Ephesus would have been around here somewhere. And so we've got this one little city, one person speaking in a hall day after day after day. And what happens? The message spreads, and it goes on and on and on throughout this whole region. Who was spreading it? It wasn't Paul. It was the people he talked to. The people he talked to talked to others, and they talked to others. And in this particular map, if you see the little yellow dots, those are cities that are mentioned in Revelation uh, when John writes, or when the Holy Spirit, speaking through John, writes to the seven churches. Those are some of the seven there. I think only six are on that particular map. But those churches, 15, 20 years later, were big enough and important enough in the whole Christendom to be mentioned in John's letter. Huge growth. What missionary, what person, evangelist would love to have that kind of growth? But you know, it was not done by Paul. He taught so that others would teach, so that others would teach others, and on and on it went. That is the missionary model, and that's the model of evangelism that God has given all of us. I think I could probably speak for every staff and faculty member here that if what we do here at Prairie ends here and none of you reproduce into other people, we will have failed. We will have not done our job. If what God has done in your heart ends in your heart and you don't reproduce in other people, you too will have failed. You will not have done your job. Luke 12, Jesus says to those who have been given much, much is required. And all of you here have been given the gift of salvation, I trust, that you're members of God's family. And all of you have been here to receive a lot more knowledge and understanding about the truth of God word, God's word than many people around the world. Much is required of you. Reproduce as the people in Ephesus did. Wouldn't it be great to say that all of Canada heard God's word because of what Prairie's done? God's people have done here. So the Holy Spirit took over, and he was persistent. He did not stop with Paul. He kept on doing the grand work across all of Asia. Notice in verse 11 what happens next. God gives Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. I don't know why Luke added that word unusual. To me, it implies that he was doing things that he'd not been done before. Things that were different, out of the ordinary, perhaps more powerful. To me, that highlights that sometimes when God gives us gifts, he gives us gifts for a particular situation, particular context. He wants us to be able to handle a certain um, situation. And so he provides those gifts for that period of time to actually endorse what God is doing through us. The Holy Spirit endorses Paul's work by giving him these extraordinary miracles. So what does he do? He is healing people using even handkerchiefs and aprons that merely touched his skin. People were being healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Sometimes take a look through the New Testament and see how many cases where healing and evil spirits are tied together. I didn't actually add them all up, but many, many places in the New Testament, those two go together. Because honestly, I, I believe that a lot of 
the diseases that we deal with have spiritual, a spiritual background, a spiritual source to them. In the village where we lived in Cameroon, if somebody got sick, the, the first question is, is not what bacteria or what virus do they have, it was who caused it, who spoke to the evil powers that sent this particular um, illness or this disease, how did it actually get here? Those of you who read a little bit of our story in the Servant magazine that's out right now, when our daughter Jenny was sick, um, we had had recent contact with someone that we really guessed might have been spiritually oppressed or even demon-possessed. And so as we were looking at different Western medical answers to this, and everybody was coming up with no answer at all, because of our Cameroonian experience, we said, I wonder if it's a spiritual matter. And so we actually talked with somebody who's worked, we were in Canada at the time, we talked with somebody who's worked with First Nations people and has been involved in a lot of spiritual warfare. And he came and spent many, many hours with us praying and uh, talking with us, trying to discern whether it was a spiritual um, thing that was causing our daughter to be sick or whether it was just physical. And we really felt after that period of time that it was not a spiritual thing, that it was a physical thing, and we moved on from there. And God chose to heal her through Western medicine. But you know, we, we rejoice in miracles because God heals somebody dramatically. That's a spiritual healing. Don't you believe it also be possible that the evil one can spiritually make somebody ill? Happens all the time in many other parts of the world. We had a, wasn't a neighbor, it was just a little farther down the street from us, a young an older man, actually, probably in his late 40s, early 50s when we got there, that we heard early on from people, said he is a bad man. They didn't call him a witch doctor, but they, I think the word that they used for him was a sorcerer. He's a bad man. He's killed people, not physically, but he killed them spiritually. And so we thought, well, that's interesting. We were fresh and new on the field, didn't have a whole lot of context for that. I was like, well, let's listen and learn. Let's see what, what that means. One of our language helpers actually had lost a son to this man. They were actually physical neighbors. And he said, well, that man killed my son. And they were having a real hard time forgiving them because he said, this man did it. And he's not repentant. He did it for reasons that are unknown to us, but he did it. One day, I was walking down past uh, this man's house, and there's a whole bunch of people on the, in front of it. It's like, well, that's interesting. I looked, and the chief of the village was there, and all of his counselors were there, and there's a big crowd of people watching them. And the chief and the counselors were standing in front, and they were shouting at the house. Now, this man was standing in front of his house, like on his front porch, just looking at everybody. It was basically like, looked like a mob. But the chief and his counselors were sitting there, and the chief was talking to him, speaking very loudly, very forcefully. And that's a fairly culturally way to confront people in our, in our culture is just to shout at them. So that was not strange, but we, will, we wanted to hear what was going on. We didn't understand everything. We were still language learners, but uh, we watched what was going on. I kept on going on and on and on, and finally the man went back inside the house. We went on our journey and then came back hours later to find out what the rest of the story was. And what the story was was that there was a young girl about nine or ten years old, a neighbor on the other side that had been ill for a while and then all of a sudden had stopped speaking. Like she refused to talk, 
could not talk, could not uh, otherwise looked healthy, normal, but refused to speak. And this family said, well, it's obviously the sorcerer who is trying to kill her, trying to stop her from speaking, and that's just the first step to eventually killing her off. And so they had figured this out by diviner, going to a diviner and said, you know, who's causing this? And they had fingered this, this sorcerer. And so it, was, it became a power confrontation. What are we going to do about this? They went to the village and got the, the chief and the counselors. And in our context, the chief is also a spiritual power. He has spiritual powers attached to him as well. And he came, and together with the whole group, they had the spiritual power to confront this man. And he said, you will not do this. You will not kill this girl. We are going to stand here in front of your house until this girl speaks. So go inside your house. We're going to send in the girl after you. And we're going to stand here until that girl comes back out speaking. And if you do not, we will burn the house down with you in it. I don't know how long they were out there because we didn't stay for the whole uh, scenario. We left and uh, came back. But I believe it was around an hour or two. He actually went in there. And in, in that period of time, 90 minutes or so, he came back out and the little girl was speaking again. And the chief and the counselors and all the crowd said, great, fine, thank you. And they went, went their way. The, the girl was, and didn't have any further health problems after that. The evil world is powerful. And we see that in the scriptures here, after the healing takes place, The next thing we, we hear is a strange little story about these, the sons of Siva, who were Jewish exorcists who were trying to uh, cast out demons. But instead of casting out demons using whatever strength, whatever uh, spiritual power they had, they said, they, I love how they put it in this translation, they tried. They tried to, to cast out the demons using the name of the Lord Jesus. Obviously, they'd been successful at some stage in their earlier experience, or else they wouldn't be in the business, right? They had uh, obviously been able to cast out some spirits. But in this particular case, the spirits were stronger than the, their own spirits. It was a power play, almost like a sumo wrestlers. You walk into the ring, who's going to force the other one out? Who's going to be thrown down? But in this case... The, there wasn't, Paul wasn't in this conflict. It was the powerful spirit against a very weak man without these seven sons, without any spiritual authority, without the Holy Spirit within them. And what happens? He asks the question, I know Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Who are you? And with that, the, the evil spirits tear into these seven guys and send them out bleeding. And they, they've lost the battle. They get shoved so far out of the ring, they're no longer even in contention anymore. But the Holy Spirit uses this yet one other situation to endorse what Paul is doing. Saying Paul is the one who knows Jesus Christ. Paul, in his, all of his healings and everything else that he's doing there, he is the one who has that authority. You know, you and I have the same authority. Do you remember in Matthew 10 where Jesus gives his disciples authority to cast out evil spirits? Well, back in, if you keep on going to the very end, the Great Commission, 
We're reminded again that he's given, Jesus has been given authority by his Father in heaven. All authority over the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And then he commissions his disciples, you and I here, to take that authority and go out and make disciples in the rest of the world. We have that authority. We don't need to fear the powers of the evil one. We saw time and time and again situations where power was part of the scenario in Cameroon. But we did not have to fear. And I want to close with that. There's no reason to fear the evil one. The evil one is there. He's present. He's sneaky. But we don't need to fear. Because not only does he and the Holy Spirit, he endorses the work, his work, but he transforms us. He turns us into new people that do have that authority that we can tackle anything that he sends our way. Would you close in prayer with me? Father, thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for all that you do through him in our hearts and lives. Lord, I would ask if there are any here who don't know him, who have not seen him, would you open their eyes? Would you help them to long to see your Holy Spirit active in them? And Lord, thank you for the authority you've given us against all the powers of darkness in this world. Lord, did you help us to live this day with that authority? Thank you that you have all power. May we never forget the gift and the power that you've given us through him, your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for your word, for the stories in it, for the truth they contain. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.